sweet of peace on earth, good will to men. I thought as how Hello and welcome to day two of the Craftlit Christmas Extravaganza. Today we have two interesting selections for you. The first one is a Cornish Christmas play. Now, these are all LibriVox recordings that we're using for this Christmas season, and rarely have I come across a version of a play that is this well done. And it's not because of the audio quality, and it's not even necessarily because of the actors. It's because of the spirit with which it was put together. It's hard for us to understand right now, I think, exactly how important these kinds of plays were pre-English Civil War, so this is before Cromwell, and how much of a divot the Puritan rule of the country took out of these kinds of cultural heritage texts. We don't have mystery plays that we go and watch anymore, and those mystery plays were the mysteries of religion, of the revelation, of of Christ's life, of the resurrection, his birth. All of these things were done as plays. Back in the medieval times, actors would come in or the town would host wagons that had drop-down sides. If you ever saw the movie Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Richard Dreyfuss's band of players had a wagon like this where the side dropped down and it became a thrust stage. And they would set up these wagons around the main square of a town, then they would have the mystery plays and you could travel wagon to wagon to wagon and watch the plays or they'd all be put on at the same time. And then they just keep repeating them and you could watch in order. Sometimes they did the Stations of the Cross in plays. All sorts of stuff got done and they were funny for the most part, you know, up until the resurrection. And I think we in our modern world, especially in the United States, have a fairly difficult time wrapping our head around funny, slapstick, almost religious plays, to the point where bodily functions were part of the jokes on stage. Because, of course, if we're made in God's image, then the things that we do must also be part of that image. And people had a rip-roaring time with this stuff. And then during the that Puritan takeover, all of that was lost, or at least suppressed. But because it was such a, a long history of these kinds of plays, they were brought back, and they were brought back often by folklorists and historians in the 19th century. And that is what we have for you today. There was a man named William Sandys, S-A-N-D-Y-S. He was born in 1792, and then all through the 1800s, he was working on, well, actually, he was working as a lawyer. But what he really liked to do was collect carols, hymns, and in at least two instances, plays. One of them is the one you're going to hear today. It is a Cornish Christmas play. And evidently, these Christmas plays were particularly popular in Cornwall and in Yorkshire. And this one is is one from Cornwall, obviously. Now, he was doing all of these collections right around the same time that Dickens was writing, and they often overlapped. They, they may have even collaborated at some point in sharing each other's documents because they were... They were both working to bring the joy back into life that had been damaged by the Puritans, but also damaged by the Industrial Revolution. And so there was a, a real focus by these two guys on on trying to liven things up again and 
give everybody something to celebrate about or for or with, or even in some cases, just giving them time and space to have a good time again. So what you're actually going to hear is a group of people hooting and hollering and cheering and booing the bad guy and cheering the good guy. And you're going to hear some ridiculous sword fights because this is St. George and the Dragon as a Christmas play. And I think it's a lot of fun. So that's our first selection. And it is followed by a very different kind of story from a very different part of the world. This one comes from Brett Hart, who you may recall as the author of The Outcasts of Poker Flat. Brett Hart, he's actually at least half Jewish. He grew up in New York State. And then when he was 17, he moved to California. And California is really where he made his name for himself. In some ways, he was very much like Mark Twain as far as the trajectory. But in other ways, he was very much unlike Mark Twain. In fact, Mark Twain was very critical of Bret Hart. It's hard to know if that was just professional jealousy or if he really had a leg to stand on, but he claimed that Bret Hart was lousy at dialect and things like that. And if you've ever read Huckleberry Finn, you know that at the beginning of the book, Mark Twain has a little note to the reader saying, look, all these people, they speak differently. And so their dialect is spelled differently. And I just, I just wanted you to know that so you didn't think I made a mistake. I actually did it on purpose. And Mark Twain claims that Bret Hart really wasn't capable of doing that. Whether that's true or not, Bret Hart did do an incredible job of writing down stories of California during a very interesting time in California history. His stories are always interesting. He's an interesting character himself. And even before he passed away, he had already started to fall out of the mainstream. His writing is very different from the Cornish play. It's very different from Mark Twain. And it's different from pretty much everybody else we're going to read during our 12 days before Christmas. So you get a little piece of something different today. Two very, very different texts. I hope you like them. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Uh, if you'd like to take your seats and settle down. Um, before we start, uh, this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Uh, for more information or to volunteer, uh, yes, thank you, thank you, uh, please visit LibriVox.org. Now, the uh, LibriVox players tonight will be performing for you a Cornish Christmas play from uh, W. Sandys, 1833. So there you go, I'll, you know, welcome them on stage and uh, have a good evening everybody. Thank you. Cornish Christmas Play by William Sandys Enter the Turkish Knight Open your doors and let me in. I hope your favours I shall win. Whether I rise or whether I fall, I'll do my best to please you all. St. George is here and swears he will come in. And if he does, I know he'll pierce my skin. If you will not believe what I do say, let Father Christmas come in. Clear the way. Retires. Enter Father Christmas. Here come I, old Father Christmas, welcome or welcome not. I hope old Father Christmas will never be forgot. I am not come here to laugh or to jeer, but for a pocket full of money and a skin full of beer. 
If you will not believe what I do say, come in, king of Egypt, clear the way. Enter the king of Egypt. Here I, the king of Egypt, boldly do appear. St. George, St. George, walk in, my only son and heir. Walk in, my son, St. George, and boldly act thy part, that all the people here may see thy wondrous art. Enter St. George. All right. Here come I, St. George from Britain did I spring. I'll fight the dragon bold, my wonders to begin. I'll clip his wings, he shall not fly. I'll cut him down, or else I die. Enter the dragon. Who's he that seeks the dragon's blood, and calls so angry and so loud? That English dog, will he before me stand? I'll cut him down with my courageous hand. With my long teeth and scurvy jaw, of such I'd break up half a score, and stay my stomach till I'd more. Come on then, you big beast. St. George and the dragon fight. Roar! Good Lord, your breath stinks. Roar! Oh. Ah, my moustache, my eyebrows. Actually, that looks rather fetching. Right. The latter is killed. Ahem. Is there a doctor to be found already near at hand to cure a deep and deadly wound to make the champion stand? Enter doctor. Oh yes, there is a doctor to be found already near at hand to cure a deep and deadly wound and make the champion stand. What can you cure? All sorts of diseases. Whatever you please is. The physic, the palsy and the gout. If the devil's in, I'll blow him out. What is your fee? Fifteen pounds, it is my fee. The money to lay down. But as to such a rogue as thee, I cure for ten pounds. I carry a little bottle of alicampane. Here, Jack, take a little of my flip-flop. Pour it down thy tip-top, rise up, and fight again. The doctor performs his cure. The fight is renewed, and the dragon again is killed. Here am I, St. George, that worthy champion bold, and with my sword and spear I won three crowns of gold. I fought the fiery dragon, and brought him to the slaughter. By that I won fair Sabra, the king of Egypt's daughter. Where is the man that now will me defy? I'll cut his giblets full of holes and make his buttons fly. The Turkish knight advances. Here come I, the Turkish knight, come from the Turkish land to fight. I'll fight St. George, who is my foe. I'll make him yield before I go. He brags to such a high degree. 
He think there's none can do the like of he. Where is the Turk that will before me stand? I'll cut him down with my courageous hand. The fight, the knight, is overcome and falls on one knee. Oh, pardon me, St. George, pardon of thee I crave. Oh, pardon me this night, and I will be thy slave. No pardon shalt thou have, while I have foot to stand. So rise thee up again, and fight out sword in hand. They fight again, and the knight is killed. Father Christmas calls for the doctor, with whom the same dialogue occurs as before, and the cure is performed. Enter the giant Turpin. Here come I, the giant. Bold Turpin is my name, and all the nations round do tremble at my fame. Where'er I go, they tremble at my sight. No lord or champion long with me would fight. Here's one that dares to look thee in the face, and soon will send thee to another place. Take that! Ha 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 ha! Have at you, sir. Take that! You'll have to be quicker than that, sir. Aha! Not the face! Not, not the face! Oh no! Ha! Ouch! Ah! Ha! A hit! A palpable hit! Mm. Oh! Gotcha! Oh! Wah! And the giant is killed. Medical aid is called in as before, and the cure performed by the doctor, who then, according to the stage direction, is given a basin of girty grout. And a kick, and driven out. Now, ladies and gentlemen, your sport is most ended. So prepare for the hat, which is highly commended. The hat it would speak if it had but a tongue. Come, throw in your money, and think it no wrong. Narration read by Esther. The Dragon, read by Kara Schallenberg. St. George by Simon Taylor. Doctor read by Iswa. The King of Egypt, read by Matthew Walton. Turkish Knight, read by Kristen Hughes. Giant Turpin, read by Betsy Bush. Father Christmas, read by Henry Fregon. This giant is in the public domain. Christmas Gift That Came to Rupert A Story for Small Soldiers From Mrs. Skagg's Husbands and Other Stories By Bret Hart Read by Alan Drake In October of 2006 In Long Branch, New Jersey It was the Christmas season in California A season of falling rain and springing grasses There were intervals when, through driving clouds and flying scud, 
the sun visited the haggard hills with a miracle, and death and resurrection were as one. And out of the very throes of decay, a joyous life struggled outward and upward. Even the storms that swept down the dead leaves nurtured the tender buds that took their places. There were no episodes of snowy silence. Over the quickening fields, the farmer's plowshare hard followed the furrows left by the latest rains. Perhaps it was for this reason that the Christmas evergreens, which decorated the drawing room, took upon themselves a foreign aspect and offered a weird contrast to the roses, seen dimly through the windows as the southwest wind beat their soft faces against the panes. Now, said the doctor, drawing his chair closer to the fire, and looking mildly but firmly at the semicircle of flaxen heads around him. I want it distinctly understood before I begin my story that I am not to be interrupted by any ridiculous questions. At the first one I shall stop. At the second I shall feel it my duty to administer a dose of castor oil all around. The boy that moves his legs or arms will be understood to invite amputation. I have brought my instruments with me and never allow pleasure to interfere with my business. Do you promise? Yes, sir, said six small voices simultaneously. The volley was, however, followed by a half dozen dropping questions. Silence. Bob, put your feet down and stop rattling that sword. Flora shall sit by my side like a little lady and be an example to the rest. Feng Tang shall stay too, if he likes. Now, turn down the gas a little. There, that will do. Just enough to make the fire look brighter and to show off the Christmas candles. Silence, everybody. The boy who cracks an almond or breathes too loud over his raisins will be put out of the room. There was a profound silence. Bob laid his sword tenderly aside and nursed his leg thoughtfully. Flora, after coquettishly adjusting the pocket of her little apron, put her arm upon the doctor's shoulder and permitted herself to be drawn beside him. Feng Tang, the little heathen page who was permitted on this rare occasion to share the Christian revels in the drawing room, surveyed the group with a smile that was at once sweet and philosophical. The light ticking of a French clock on the mantel, supported by a young shepherdess of bronze complexion and great symmetry of limb, was the only sound that disturbed the Christmas-like peace of the apartment, a peace which held the odors of evergreens, new toys, cedar boxes, glue, and varnish, in a harmonious combination that passed all understanding. About four years ago this time, began the doctor, I attended a course of lectures in a certain city. One of the professors, who was a sociable, kindly man, though somewhat practical and hard-headed, invited me to his house on Christmas night. I was very glad to go, as I was anxious to see one of his sons, who, though only twelve years old, was said to be very clever. 
I dare not tell you how many Latin verses this little fellow could recite, or how many English ones he had composed. In the first place, you'd want me to repeat them. Secondly, I'm not a judge of poetry, Latin or English. But there were judges who said they were wonderful for a boy. And everybody predicted a splendor future for him. Everybody but his father. He shook his head doubtingly whenever it was mentioned, for as I have told you, he was a practical, matter-of-fact man. There was a pleasant party at the professor's that night. All the children of the neighborhood were there, and among them the professor's clever son, Rupert, as they called him, a thin little chap, about as tall as Bobby there and as fair and delicate as Flora by my side. His health was feeble, his father said. He seldom ran about and played with other boys, preferred to stay at home and brood over his books, and compose what he called his verses. Well, we had a Christmas tree just like this, and we had been laughing and talking, calling off the names of the children who had presents on the tree, and everybody was very happy and joyous, when one of the children suddenly uttered a cry of mingled surprise and hilarity, and said, Here's something for Rupert, and what do you think it is? We all guessed. A desk, a copy of Milton, a gold pen, a rhyming dictionary? No? What then? A drum. A what? asked everybody. A drum with Rupert's name on it. Sure enough, there it was. A good-sized, bright, new, brass-bound drum with a slip of paper on it, with the inscription, For Rupert. Of course, we all laughed and thought it a good joke. You see, you're to make noise in the world, Rupert, said one. Here's parchment for the poet, said another. Rupert's last work in sheepskin covers, said a third. Give us a classic tune, Rupert, said a fourth, and so on. But Rupert seemed too mortified to speak. He changed color, bit his lips, and finally burst into a passionate fit of crying and left the room. Then those who had joked him felt ashamed, and everybody began to ask who had put the drum there. But no one knew or if they did, the unexpected sympathy awakened for the sensitive boy kept them silent. Even the servants were called up and questioned, but no one could give any idea where it came from. And what was still more singular, everybody declared that up to the moment it was produced, no one had seen it hanging on the tree. What do I think? Well, I have my own opinion, but no questions. Enough for you to know that Rupert did not come downstairs again that night, and the party soon after broke up. I had almost forgotten those things, for the War of the Rebellion broke out the next spring, and I was appointed surgeon in one of the new regiments, and was on my way to the seat of war. But I had to pass through the city where the professor lived, and there I met him. My first question was about Rupert. The professor shook his head sadly. He's not so well, he said. 
he has been declining since last Christmas when you saw him. A very strange case, he added, giving it a long Latin name. A very singular case. But go and see him yourself, he urged. It may distract his mind and do him good. I went accordingly to the professor's house and found Rupert lying on a sofa, propped up with pillows. Around him were scattered his books and what seemed in singular contrast. That drum I told you about was hanging on a nail just above his head. His face was thin and wasted. There was a red spot on either cheek, and his eyes were very bright and widely opened. He was glad to see me, and when I told him where I was going, he asked a thousand questions about the war. I thought I had thoroughly diverted his mind from its sick and languid fancies, when he suddenly grasped my hand and drew me towards him. Doctor, he said in a low whisper, you won't laugh at me if I tell you something? No, certainly not, I said. You remember that drum? He said, pointing to the glittering toy that hung around the wall. You know, too, how it came to me. A few weeks after Christmas, I was lying half asleep here, and the drum was hanging on the wall, when suddenly I heard it beaten. At first low and slowly, then faster and louder until its rolling filled the house. In the middle of the night I heard it again. I did not dare to tell anybody about it, but I have heard it every night ever since. He paused and looked anxiously in my face. Sometimes, he continued, it is played softly, sometimes loudly, but always quickening to a drum roll, so loud and alarming that I have looked to see people coming into my room to ask what was the matter. But I think, doctor, I think, he repeated slowly, looking up with a painful interest into my face, that no one hears it but myself. I thought so, too, but I asked him if he had heard it at any other time. Once or twice in the daytime, he replied, when I had been reading or writing, and then very loudly, as though it were angry, and, and tried in that way to attract my attention away from my books. I looked into his face and placed my hand upon his pulse. His eyes were very bright, and his pulse a little flurried and quick. I then tried to explain to him that he was very weak, and that his senses were very acute, as most weak peoples are, and how that when we breed, or grew interested and excited, or when he was tired at night, the throbbing of a big artery made the beating sound he heard. He listened to me with a sad smile and unbelief, but thanked me, and in a little while I went away. But as I was going downstairs, I met the professor. I gave him my opinion of the case, well, no matter what it was. He wants some fresh air and exercise, said the professor, and some practical experience of life, sir. The professor was not a bad man, but he was a little worried and impatient, 
and thought, as clever people are apt to think, that things which he didn't understand were either silly or improper. I left the city that very day, and in the excitement of battlefields and hospitals, I forgot all about little Rupert, nor did I hear of him again, until one day, meeting an old classmate in the army, who had known the professor, he told me that Rupert had become quite insane, and that in one of his paroxysms he had escaped from the house, and as he had never been found, it was feared that he had fallen in the river and was drowned. I was terribly shocked for the moment, as you may imagine, but dear me, I was living just then among scenes as terrible and shocking, and I had little time to spare to mourn over poor Rupert. It was not long after receiving this intelligence that we had a terrible battle, in which a portion of our army was surprised and driven back with great slaughter. I was detached from my brigade to ride over to the battlefield and assist the surgeons of the beaten division, who had more on their hands than they could attend to, when I reached the barn that served for a temporary hospital. I went at once to work. "'Ah, Bob,' said the doctor, thoughtfully taking the bright sword from the hands of the half-frightened Bob and holding it gravely before him. "'These pretty playthings are symbols of cruel, ugly realities.' I turned to a tall, stout Vermonter. He continued very slowly, tracing a pattern on the rug with the point of the scabbard, who was badly wounded in both thighs.' but he held up his hands and begged me to help others first, who needed it more than he. I did not at first heed his request, for this kind of unselfishness was very common in the army, but he went on. For God's sake, doctor, leave me here. There is a drummer boy of our regiment, a mere child, dying, if he isn't dead now. Go and save him first. He lies over there. He saved more than one life. He was at his post in the panic this morning and saved the honor of the regiment. I was so much more impressed by the man's manner than by the substance of his speech, which was, however, corroborated by the other poor fellows stretched around me, that I passed over to where the drummer lay with his drum beside him. I gave one glance at his face and, yes... Bob, yes, children, it was Rupert. Well, well, it needed not the chalked cross which my brother surgeons had left upon the rough board whenever he lay to show how urgent was the relief he sought. It needed not the prophetic words of the Vermonter, nor the damp that mingled with the brown curls that clung to his pale forehead to show how hopeless it was now. I called him by name. He opened his eyes, larger. I thought in the new vision that was beginning to dawn upon him and recognized me. He whispered, I'm glad you have come, but I don't think you can do me any good. I could not tell him a lie. I could not say anything. I only pressed his hand in mine as he went on. But you will see father 
and ask him to forgive me. Nobody is to blame but myself. It was a long time before I understood why the drum came to me that Christmas night, and why it kept calling to me every night, and what it said. I know it now. The work is done, and I am content. Tell Father it is better as it is. I should have lived only to worry and perplex him, and something in me tells me this is right. He lay still for a moment, and then, grasping my hand, said, Hark! I listened, but heard nothing but the suppressed moans of the wounded men around me. The drum, he said faintly. Don't you hear it? The drum is calling me. He reached out his arm to where it lay, as though he would embrace it. Listen! He went on. It's the reveille. There are the ranks drawn up in the review. Don't you see the sunlight flash down the long line of bayonets? Their faces are shining. They present arms. They come to the general, but his face I cannot look at. For the glory round his head, he sees me. He smiles. It is and with the name upon his lips that he had learned long ago, he stretched himself wearily upon the planks and lay quite still. That's all. No question now. Never mind what became of the drum. Who's that sniveling? Bless my soul. Where's my pillbox? End of the story, The Christmas Gift That Came to Rupert, by Bret Hart. The Bells, words by Henry W. Longfellow, music by John B. Calkin, sung by Megan Kunkel.